Look in Philippians chapter 1 with me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30 is where we're going to be. This passage is right behind one of the most uh, probably famous of the passages in Philippians where the apostle talks about that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, We all know that passage. If you've been in church for any length of time, probably you've heard it before. This passage is one not quite as often remembered by folks as we read through the Word of God, but one that is from God's Word and that is so important that I want to make sure that we uh, understand. The Word of God is not necessarily, this letter to the church at Philippi was not written to us by Paul, but because the Holy Spirit inspired him for these words, it is written for us. And so we are to react to this in a way that says, God, what are you telling us today? And then our response then should be, and what do you want us to do about it? So that's the questions you think about as we go through this. As Oscar gave his life, to being a Gideon, to disseminate God's word to as many people as possible. He valued the word of the Lord highly. You can see that when you look at his Bible. I'm sure that you would all see that. And so right now, I want us to stand together while I read the word of the Lord to honor that word as well. And so would you stand with me while I read from Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Paul tells the church at Philippi, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us today. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have the word of the Lord. Be seated. We're going to just break this passage down and kind of unpack it as we go, knowing that um, God speaks clearly to us in his word. Sometimes things are a little confusing, so we look to other places in Scripture where they're not confusing and let those help interpret the more confusing areas. Uh, But we know God is not trying to hide anything. He's not trying to make anything mysterious so that we can't understand it. We don't need gurus or priests or preachers to understand God's word. We need the Holy Spirit. And you get him when you turn in faith and believe on Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And uh, so all of you could do this on your own, but I appreciate you coming to walk with me through this time as we gather as the bride of Christ. And so if you would, let's just unpack this whole thing. The main point of this passage is clearly stated in the very first sentence in verse 27. And we know that because of the grammar of the original language where the only imperative, the only command actually here is in that first sentence. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me say it a different way. This is the way it helps me. I kind of restate things to make sure I understand them. Here's how I did that for myself. The only right way to live is to live a life worthy of Jesus. You hear me? The only right way to live is to live a life worthy of Jesus, or only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That whole big phrase, let your manner of life be worthy, let your manner of life be something, that's actually one word in the Greek, and it comes from a word where we get our word politics or polis for city. Um, it's the word here that means it's talking about citizenry in its original state. And so you can kind of see it like this. The the church at Philippi was really big and and, and glad that they were a colony of Rome. They loved it. It was really big for them because it made them citizens of the Roman Empire. 
And that was a very big, important thing at that time. And so we can kind of see it like this. Paul's kind of looking at them saying this way. Only live as citizens worthy of the kingdom of our great king, who is Jesus. Okay, that's another way you could state that statement. Or you could say it again. It's the only worthy cause is to live our life in a way worthy of Jesus. Is the only way we can do it when we see eternity and we have that in perspective. Or the way I've, again, I've said it over and over again to myself, the only right way to live is to live a life worthy of Jesus. There's a lot of ways to live, a lot of ways you could choose what you choose. But the only right way to live is to live a life worthy of Jesus. Now, what does that actually mean? Look at the passage again. Read it. Only, he starts off, only. There's many ways you could do it. This is the only way to do it, he says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of of the gospel of Christ. So there's a couple of questions that beg here. What does it mean to be worthy of the gospel of Christ? What does it mean to be worthy, period? How do we live in such a way? Those are big questions. And these are questions that we're going to answer as we get into things now. So he's going to tell us some things in a minute about how to do that, but first we need to unpack what he means when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the first thing you need to know is you need to know and love Jesus by knowing and loving the good news about him or the gospel. That's the first thing you got to know because he says to live your life worthy of the gospel. That's the only way to do it. So we got to understand what the gospel is. So the gospel, as you know, is the good news about Jesus. It's about the person who loved us so much that even though we do not live up to how we were created to be, even though we fail constantly, even though we mess up over and over and over and over and over again, that he sent the one his son, God sent his only son, who's perfect, fully God, became fully man and bringing together in himself the God-man so that he could live a life that we could never live, that he could live perfection and holiness and live perfectly on this earth. And then the one who should never be punished for that was put on the cross. He went to the cross and took our punishment so that we could be brought into the family of God, that we who were sinners who deserved that punishment could be declared righteous, even though we are not. That on the cross, he took our sin upon his shoulders and he gave us his righteousness, declared us right with God. And that he finished the work of paying for our debt that we owe by suffering under all of the wrath that we should endure for all eternity. And that when he died, right before he died, he said, it is finished. He finished the work. We have nothing else we need to do in order to earn God's favor. Zero. There's no more left for us to do. Jesus did it all on the cross. And then he died and he went in the tomb. And three days later, he rose in victory over Satan, sin, death, and hell for us so we could be reunited with the Father. That's the good news. And that means that good news works in our lives to change us from here forward. And God's not through changing you and working in you. That's what the Word of God is for us, why he is speaking to it to us today through it as we look at it together. His Holy Spirit is here to work in our midst and to understand what it means to live a life worthy of that. We have to know what that gospel is. Here's the second part you have to know. This is the part we're not going to like. You have to actually understand that we cannot, in all actuality, we cannot live a life worthy of that gospel. If we could, we wouldn't need Jesus. If we could live a life of perfection that would give glory all to God all the time, we would not need the Lord to come here himself. So this is a conundrum. We cannot live a life worthy of the gospel, but he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what in the world does he mean? And you may argue with me a little bit, saying, well, we can do pretty close. One of the things that I realized 
uh, coming back to the south, and I'm so glad to be back here. I went up there and was cold at night. <laughs> wore a sweatshirt the first night. It was 50 degrees. I was shaking. My blood's already thinned out in this hot Alabama sun. And I want to be right where God calls us. God called us here, and we are here because he's called us, and I want to stay here until he takes me home or pushes me somewhere else, right? That's all of us should be that way. And so this is right where we are, right where we need to be, and it's so good to be home. One of the things I recognize about being home, though, is a lot of folks, just the way we were brought up, a lot of us think not very highly of, of a few things about ourselves. Let me back that, change that a little bit. Let me say it this way. A lot of us think too highly of ourselves in the sense that we don't recognize the depth of our sinfulness in its totality. Okay, we don't want to think about how bad we are because we look at other people horizontally and we recognize, well, I'm not as bad as that one, or I didn't make those choices, or, but we are all, to the core, sinners in need of saving. That means that we were created to all the time reflect God's glory. We were made in His image, which means like a mirror image, to reflect His glory all the time. Everything we do should make much of God, and we fail over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Now, the Bible does talk about sin in different degrees, that some sins seem to be worse than others in their degrees, but in the the big picture, any one of those sins is enough to condemn us for all eternity because we're sinning against a holy, perfect God, and we're rebelling against Him when we don't do what we're made to do, and that deserves our death for all eternity. His wrath poured out forever. All of us are that bad. One of my favorite preachers that kind of broke me into my depravity, my sinfulness, he said it like this, that there's not one person in this room that is not just as morally depraved as Hitler himself. The only difference is that God's grace is still upon us to not let us go that far. That's how bad our hearts are. You may struggle with that, but look through the scriptures and see that none No one seeks after God. All fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. It's hard to hear, but it's the truth of Scripture. And when you see the truth of the depth of our sinfulness, it begins to show you the beauty and the glory of the King who would give His life for us. It's an even greater feat that He would do that when you start to see how far down the rabbit hole we go in our own sin. And then we love Him more. That's how, as a Christian, you love God more and more and more as you go through your Christian life because you begin to see the onion layers peel off. And you thought, man, it would just end after a little bit. But no, it keeps going further and further. I have more and more junk that God has to clean out. Now, he saved me from it already, but he's still working in me, right? And so we can't actually live a life worthy of the gospel. But what we can do is all the time recognize our total dependence on God for everything that we have, everything we need, recognizing that today we need a Savior just as much as the first time we met Him. And when we totally depend on Him for everything, in that we are saying, I cannot, but He can. I will not be able to, but He's already done it for me in Jesus. Then He gets glory in all those moments, you see? So we will fail, but Jesus has never failed. We will fail. God has never dropped the ball. We will make mistakes. He has never done so. We'll never do so. And so the more that we confess our need and our struggles and our inabilities, the more He is lifted high. That's how we live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, living dependently upon Him. The only right way to live is to live a life worthy of Jesus. And that's how we do that. See, the problem is that many things in our life have taken a top place good things, kids, family, jobs, whatever it is. We put it in an ultimate place, and that's above God in our lives. We don't want to think about it or act like it. That's why Jesus says hard things that even now we struggle with when he says, you must love 
me in such a way that you look like you hate your mother and father or your sons and daughters. Ultimate allegiance. Because he's worth more than them, because he's more valuable than them, because he's greater than them. And when you love him, most of all, everything else is put in rightful place, and therefore we can love those things and people the right ways too. It's not that we don't love them, it's that we love him most. When he's our ultimate treasure, we're living out what we were created to be. The only right way to live is that kind of worthy life of Christ. So here's how he talks about it. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner worthy of life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. We're going to break those three things down. Here's the marks of doing that kind of living. Number one, we see that he says you've got to stand firm in one spirit. Now, what does that mean? If you've played any kind of sports before, you, you know what it means to stand firm, or if you've ever had to block a little sister or little brother from getting to a certain position or place, right? I see it all the time. They stand firm, they get a grip on something, they lock down, they bend their knees, they get their weight forward a little bit on the balls of their feet, ready to go, right? They're standing firm. And the best way to stand firm is to actually to anchor yourself to something greater than you, right? So oftentimes that happens in my house with kids running full speed and one of them will run to me and anchor themselves to my leg. They don't know how unstable I am. Standing firm means not to be moved. Do not be moved by the desires of your heart that compete with your affections for Jesus. You understand? Don't be moved by the desires of your heart that compete with your affections for Jesus. There are things in your life that compete with your love of Jesus constantly if you are His. And don't don't be moved by those things. There's a lot of things in your life. Some lead you to love God more. Some lead you away from the love of God. Those things that lead you to love God more, embrace them, but don't elevate them to the top. Embrace them. The things that lead you to have your eyes distracted, those things you've got to let go of. You understand that sins are, those things are gone, empty, get rid of them. Other things can be good things. They might be distractions for you. If you were trying to stand firm in the midst of whatever is going on in your life and you're getting distracted by things that get you off guard, you will go down. You understand? That's why he says, stand firm. He's commanding, stand firm. Do not be moved. Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1. Later on in the letter, he says this, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, same word used as it was earlier, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That means that we anchor ourselves to Jesus if we want to stand firm. 
You don't anchor yourself in your good abilities or in your grandeur of eloquence in prayer or of your, your longevity in being able to read the Bible every day. You don't do that in your, your, your pins that you get for being here every week for years as a Sunday school person, right? That doesn't do it. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you do, right? That's not what does it. You anchor yourself to Jesus with everything. And when you hold on to other things that you put above that that are more important, you're going to fall away. And so you anchor yourself to Jesus. And the beautiful thing we find out when we do that is that really when you think you've got to hold on to him, he's actually the one got to hold on you. And he's what carries you through. Stand firm. Resist temptation. Run to Jesus. Man, I'm going to talk directly to you. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14, Paul says it to the Corinthians like this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. We have some messed up ideas about what it means to be a man in this world. That's okay. God clearly tells us what it means to be a man. Look at this again, men. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. Be watchful. That means keep your eyes up and at the ready all the time. Don't be caught off guard. Be vigilant. Always have yourself ready for whatever's coming against you. Always be on the lookout for things that might tempt you and draw you away. Be ready to discard those and change your eyes. Don't look at those things. Don't put yourself into them, but be ready for them to hit you hard. Be watchful. Always vigilant. Always ready. You can't get off your guard. Our children are depending on us to be vigilant. Men. Our wives are depending on us to be watchful men, not watching the junk, watching for their safety, watching for the enemy, watching for those that might come around that would be willing to destroy instead of support. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. That means not on your own self. Stand firm on Jesus. He is our anchor. And that's what it means when he says, act like men. Be strong as we lean into the Lord. Let all that you do be done in love. That means sometimes you do hard things out of love. Sometimes you just show grace when you can show grace and mercy. Sometimes you show discipline when you love because you love, just like God does with us. Man, if we would stand up and stand firm, if we would take that role and stand firm for the sake of the gospel, holding on, lashing ourselves to Jesus, holding on to Jesus, things would be a lot different for us in our lives. The struggles would fall away. The temptations would come, but man, if we're lashed to Jesus, we keep regularly putting our eyes back on him, it would change a lot of things. I often read a lot of other guys' sermons when I get ready to preach just to make sure I'm not missing something major, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but also because the guys are way better at this than me, and, and uh, Spurgeon's one of the guys I always go to him. Uh, he had a statement in here that was really hard for me, it might be hard for some of us. It says, uh, He's talking about the same passage. He says, it strikes me that a living, which becomes the gospel of Christ, is always a bold and fearless kind of living. Oh, the great thing the church needs is more holiness, he says. It doesn't need, by the way, more time of us to stand together for singing, although that's good too. He's not saying that's the greatest need is not that. That's good though. 
He doesn't mean the greatest need is for us to, to come to prayer meetings. Oh, that is a great need. It's, it's a huge need. We should pray together regularly all the time, as often as we can. That's not the greatest need of the church. The, the greatest thing is not for us to be in Sunday school all the time. It's not for us to, to be preaching all the time. He says the greatest need is holiness. Because in the Bible, the only thing talked about with God, with the trihagion, they call it, which means said three times about him to the fullest degree, is God is holy, holy, holy. And he says over and over again, you be holy because I am holy. So Spurgeon says our greatest thing the church needs is more holiness. He says the worst enemies of the church are not the infidels. Really, one does not know who the infidels are nowadays. They're so small a fry and so few of them that one would have to hunt to find them out. No, the worst enemies of the church are the hypocrites, the formalists, the mere professors, the inconsistent walkers, you, if there are any such here, you pull down the walls of Jerusalem. You open the gates to her foes. And as much as lies in you, you serve the devil. May God forgive you. May Christ forgive you. May you be washed from this atrocious sin. May you be brought humbly to the foot of the cross to accept mercy, which until now you have rejected. The only right way to live is to live a life worthy of of Jesus. Anything else, it's not worth it. Nothing. So stand firm. Be holy as God is holy. Men, let us lead in being holy. Our wives, our kids, this church family, this community needs us to strive for holiness for the sake of God's name, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of the sanctification of this body. He calls upon us to lead this way, to be holy because he is holy. In Galatians 5, Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We've been freed, brothers. We don't have to submit to it anymore, sisters. We're done. It's done with us. It has no hold on us. We do not have to submit to it anymore if we're in Christ. We've been free. Let's live like free people. Amen. Let's live like free people. The only right way to live is life worthy of Jesus. Look how he says next, he says, he goes, stand firm in one spirit. It means unified. And he goes, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. With one mind, we must be unified. We must be unified with one mind, which is the mind of Christ. We will have differences in this faith family. We will have various preferences within this faith family. We will make decisions that we don't agree with in this faith family. That's okay. We're all sinners saved by grace. But when it comes down to it, we all have to be on the same mindset, and that's not my mindset. It, it, it's not going to be Charles's mindset. It, it's not going to be Bill's mindset. It's not going to be Corbin's mindset. It's not going to be Terrell's mindset. It, it's, it's not going to be Bobby's mindset. It's not going to be anybody. It's going to be Jesus's mindset if we're the church. That's the only mind we have. That's the only mind we can we can see to, to have unity together is the mind of Christ. The only way we know that is by being in the Word and letting God pour it over us. And together we see to focus in on one mind, the mind of Christ. Listen, 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Without unity, we will not be what we should be as the church. We must have unity in the long run. That doesn't mean you're unified behind me or my mind. It means you're unified in the mind of Christ. 
But how do we know what that is? With one mind, with one focus, and only one focus, the focus of Christ's focus. I said it when I came here originally, the only thing I know to do, the only thing I know that can lead us all is the statement that, that Paul made later on in 1 Corinthians in 2.2, 2, where he says that I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's got to be our banner that we wave. We're not going to wave the banner of anti-this or anti-that. We're not going to wave a banner of, of, of serving this nation or that nation. We will, love, we will serve nations. We will serve this nation we live in. And we will be anti some things because God is anti some things. The only banner we need to raise is the banner of Jesus and Him crucified for us. That's the unification banner. That's what we get behind. The only way to live is a life worthy of Jesus by being unified. Striving side by side. And to strive side by side, he made it really clear. We have one mission. That's it, one mission. On his way out the door, the one mission, Matthew 28. It says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and here's the big words, make disciples. Make disciples. You recognize, right, that what Jesus did his entire time here and then calls us to do here in the end before he goes, that that one thing, making disciples, is the one thing he tells the church that we must do with other people around us. That's the all-encompassing statement. The other words here describe how we do that. Go, therefore, you go to do it. You've got to go out of here to do it. You then also baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Making disciples. We are not the church if we're not making disciples. We are not the church if people are not loving and following Jesus more because of what they get from us. Our job as leaders is to equip you to make disciples. And then to be, if you're called a disciple, that means that you will make disciples. That's what disciples do. They make more disciples of Jesus. And so if you're not making disciples, you're not being the Christian we say we're being. We understand, right? Now, here's the thing. We as leaders in the church often don't do it as we should. So maybe you say, I grew up in another church and I don't know how to make disciples. Or maybe I've been in this church for a while, but I've kind of not been in, in that class, <laughs> right? I haven't been taught by somebody to do that. That's okay. I will accept responsibility, and I may not be the one that leads you in that way, but one of us in leadership in this church will lead you. Come let us know. One of the best things you can do is be self-aware. And if you're self-aware right now that you need to know how to make disciples and God puts that on your heart today and says, yep, do this, we better be obedient and we will help. Because we're not making disciples, we're not doing anything that Jesus said to do ultimately. It is all for naught. It's not to be gathered together and hang out in a holy huddle, right? We got to be disciples who make disciples. That's what he calls us to do. Go and do this thing. Now I'm going back and prepare a place. I'll be back later to get all you guys that you've made disciples, Okay. That's what he's doing. So we need to make disciples. And look, some of us get very fearful when we hear those words. Well, I don't know how to do that. How am I going to do this thing? That sounds like that's way outside of my box. That's what we pay you for, right? And that's the hard part. It feels like that's the case, but really it's not. That's one of the, the worst things that's happened to the church is the clergification of the church. Now, don't get me wrong. All of us that are in ministry want to be able to still do what we do and provide for our families. Paul did it by building tents. And if, if that's what it takes, we'll do that. But in the meantime, we're here to help you so you can make disciples too. And that's what we want to do. Make disciples. And if you're afraid, it's okay because look, God's prepared for that. Are you ready? He's already talking. You ready? He's about to say it again. Are you ready? 
Here we go. That's what he says. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There it is. Don't be afraid, he said. That usually makes us all feel better when people tell us not to be afraid, right? <laughs> it doesn't usually in my house. Let me tell you, though, fear can be a good thing. Fear can be a very good thing, depending on what you fear. I was just helping to make dinner last night. We got a bunch of kids down with the sickness. And um, I was helping to make some noodles. I know it's a hard one. But my son, Luke, wanted to help me. And so as he was on the, the, sta- the, the chair uh, over the stove, not over the stove, but you know, in front of the stove, I was showing him how to know if things are on. If they're not, always treat it like it's on. You test it by getting close, not by touching. You know? And so he's very afraid. And, and so if it's red, definitely recognize it's on, but it could always be on. You never know. And so we're trying to teach these lessons. It's good to be afraid of things that can hurt you. It keeps you safe. It's good. Fear is a healthy thing. In fact, Psalm 19, 7 through 10, listen to this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Look, some people will tell you, don't fear the Lord. If you've got Jesus, you don't have to fear the Lord. I'm telling you, the Bible says fear the Lord. So fear the Lord and love the Lord because he loves you. And that's why it's okay to fear the Lord and still come to him. Because he sent his son to stand in the gap and to take all the punishment you deserve so that you could be brought into the throne room of grace, unhindered, not worried. But it's still good to fear the Lord because being fearful of the Lord is healthy. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. You fear the Lord, you're not going to do the stuff that he destroys people for, right? That's a healthy thing, to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, but do not fear the enemy, your opponents, right? Don't fear them. Let me talk about the enemy for a minute. Not frightened of anything by your opponents. Let's first talk about enemy with a capital E, and that'd be the one we call Satan or the devil, right? Don't fear that enemy. Fear the Lord. Satan is not equal with Jesus in power and ability. Jesus is God. Satan is a created being. He does not have power over you if you are saved. He does not dwell within you. There's not room for him because the Holy Spirit is there. And Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all at once. He is not in all places over all things. He's called the ruler of this place. He's ruler like a king would be in Ireland who cannot reach you here all the time because he can't be everywhere at once. He has minions, others that work against you, and he can, with his help of these minions, can entice you, tempt you, do all kinds of things, but he cannot make you sin. You understand? He cannot make you do something you don't want to do. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned because they wanted to go against God. They wanted to taste and be as wise as God. He just tempted them and lied to them. You see in the Bible where people are possessed. Yes, they are, but they're not followers of the Lord. When they're freed and God makes them followers of Him, like Jesus with that 
guy or guys in the, in the, in the valley where he casts the demons out, the legion amongst the pigs, they run off the cliff. That guy he sends off to be a missionary. He's no longer open to the enemy. He's been sanctified, regenerated, right? The enemy is not all-powerful. Do not fear the devil the way that you fear God. He's an opponent, and he's been dealt with. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price of all of our sin, and he crushed the enemy with his foot. The enemy has no power over you if you're in Christ. Do not give him power. He has no power. Do we understand? We do things because we want to do them. If I have a problem with alcohol and you come over and put a beer in front of me and I drink that beer and get drunk that night, that's not because it's your fault. I make that choice. You understand? The enemy cannot force you to do anything if you are in Christ. Let us not fear the enemy. Fear the Lord who then loves you so much he gave you Jesus. Do not be frightened by your opponents, and don't be fearful of other men or women. Many of us are afraid of what people are going to think about us, and for good reason. You can lose your job in some places for talking about Jesus. You can lose friends. You can lose family. You can lose other things in your life for talking about it. You can lose your life for following Jesus, like young Callie did. You can lose a lot of things, and you can be fearful of that. You can be worried about things. Now, I taught my son to be fearful of touching the eye on the stove, Okay, that's a good, healthy fear. But if he goes around the rest of his life being fearful, no matter where he is, of touching the stove, something's wrong. You know what I'm saying? There are some things that you should understand, and that then you recognize you shouldn't be fearful anymore. You just think the way you've been taught. You were fearful of the opponents. Now you should not be. Psalm 56, 10 and on. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Nobody can do anything to you that will surpass what God has done for you in Jesus on the cross. Nobody can do anything to reverse your regeneration to make you a new believer. Nobody can change that. Don't be afraid of anyone else. Be afraid of the Lord. Worship Him. Live a life worthy of Jesus. These words, back verse 27 and on. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That word striving, side by side, is where we get the word athleticism from, athletics. To strive, to work hard, to compete, right? John Piper says, none of us will be measured in our athletic prowess against the decathlon powers of an apostle Paul. Thank you, Lord, right? None of us will be measured in our athletic prowess against the decathlon powers of an Apostle Paul or William Carey or John Wesley. We will be measured against what we could have done, not by what someone else could have done. You understand? Don't be worried about you can't do it as good as somebody else. Worry about could you do what you can do? And he says, and we can all do something if we love the gospel of the glory of Christ, every one of us has something we can do for the sake of making the name of Jesus known. Every one of us. The only right way to live is a life worthy of Jesus. Look, he goes on, he says, when you do this, people will get mad at you because it does a couple of things. One, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction. They will know they're not living that way and they don't like that. And if that's true, that's bad for them and they will not like it. 
You'll have family members that will shut you down and maybe shut you out. You will have people you work with that will have nothing to do with you. You might even lose your job over it. You might be persecuted in a real physical, torturous way, depending on where you live. Like the guy that I met when I was in Morocco for a summer, who every year would be rearrested and they would try to convince him to abdicate his faith so that he would then not be proselytizing and they would burn him every time they arrested him. So they try to get him to confess that he wasn't a Christian anymore. Or the guys have lost their heads. Those are burned at the stake. Those things really still happen. And that might be you one day. It might be me one day. But we have no fear of men. What can they do to us? With the king that holds the universe in his hands and will take us home with him. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction. But, he says, it's a clear sign to you of your salvation. How do I know I'm yours, Lord? Because you live a life worthy of the gospel. Standing firm in the faith as I'm anchoring myself to Jesus, holding on for dear life with one mind, Jesus is mine, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Are you striving? Are you doing these things? If not, it's time to repent, brothers and sisters. Turn to the Lord. Let's make Jesus known. We have nothing else we can do. This is all we can cling to. It's all we have. Everything else is fleeting. It will burn up one day except for faith in the Lord, the Lord himself, those whom he's called to walk with. And he goes on and he says this thing, verse 29 and 30. Man, it's kind of crazy to hear it, right? He says, for it has been granted to you. That word granted is it's like the idea of giving a gift. But it's not just giving any old gift. The word is from the word charisma, charismatic, not in that way. Gift, charisma in the sense of love. He's lovingly granted for you these things. Look at what he says. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Well, that's where we like to stop, right? He's given me faith. He wants me to believe in him. That's why he died on the cross. Yes. He says, not only though, wait a minute, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, you can say, well, that was just to those people at that time. Yes, but it was just from Paul who was in jail at the time. Maybe he thinks that we're all going to suffer like him. He's talking to the whole church. He doesn't know if everybody there is going to suffer that way. It's a universal statement. It's all throughout Scripture, I'm sorry to tell us, that you will suffer, and you can suffer for his sake, or you can suffer for something else. But you will suffer if you're his for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In other words, you will suffer when you tell people about Jesus. There's a good gauge. If you're not suffering at all for sharing Jesus with people, maybe we need to do a little bit more of that, right? Maybe if we're not seeing that coming at us, we need to try a little bit harder about sharing Jesus. Maybe you just start off by bringing up God in the conversation. People are okay with God. They get mad at Jesus. They're okay with God. But just start off by edging in. You've heard it before, but you don't have to be like my dad who walks into the grocery store the lady I've been working on for three years and goes, she says, it's really hot out there. It's not as hot as hell. <laughs> Let me tell you, you can keep out of there through Jesus, right? You don't have to do that. But you've got to get to Jesus sooner or later or it's not really making disciples. There's only one right way to live that's a life worthy of Jesus. And it's been granted to us that we would suffer. But here's what God tells us in 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. We've heard these things, right? 
He says this, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Doesn't sound too powerful if you can resist the lion, right? That's because Jesus kicked the teeth out of that lion. He has no bite for you anymore. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And sin's been removed in Christ from us. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The only right way to live is a life worthy of Jesus. Look at this passage one more time. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You say, I can't, I fail. Yes, but Jesus did not. He lived his entire life in a way worthy of that gospel. He did everything right so that when you fail and you mess up, you can turn back to him and confess it, and he can forgive you and bring you back into that grace again because he loves you that much and he overcame it for you. It's like he's saying, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. We fail, we fall, we let go. He never did. He stood firm in one spirit, unified with the Father. He stood firm on that cross for you and for me to pay the price for us, never wavering, not one moment. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He spent his whole life for the glory of God. From thing to thing to thing, always, always, always doing the right thing, even the hard things. And not frightened in anything by his opponents. He wasn't afraid of anyone or anything. Tempted by the devil, did not fall for it. Overcame all the other things in his way. The only thing that we see him ask God to remove from him was having to go face to face with God the Father and watching him turn his back on him for the only time in all of eternity. He said, Father, this cup of wrath you're about to pour out on me that I don't deserve, but all these folks do that I'm going to save. I don't want to endure that from you. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. He strove hard and did whatever it took, never being afraid. And I bet you that the enemy was rejoicing when he breathed out his last on the cross. And that was the nail in the enemy's coffin. Because he rose in victory. And today you can have victory in Jesus in the same way. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, brothers and sisters. Turn back to the Lord and find freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from temptation. Stand firm in the Lord with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So that we can live a life worthy of Jesus by depending on him and giving him the credit and glory over and over and over again. Let that be our unifying call. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. For his glory alone. All dominion be his forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for us that God would work these truths into our heart, that he would change us. And if you've never ever given your hope and faith to Jesus, today's the day to do that. Don't wait another minute. Turn to the Lord. Repent from being away from him and going against him and come to the Lord. He loves you. His arms have been wide open for us ever since the cross. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a moment. During that time, if you have put your hope and faith in Jesus, we invite you to participate with us. If you have not, we ask you to, to abstain. That's only for those of us who have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. It represents his death on our behalf. 
But if you are his, even for the first time today, then join us and taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm going to pray. They're going to come down with the elements, and then I'll say a few words as we get ready to take it together. Father, we thank you. We ask now that you work in us, that you shape us into the image of Christ the way that you have always intended, that we would reflect your glory rightly, and that you would be the one who gets all the credit. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ on the cross. And Lord, we know we can never really live worthy of that sacrifice and that life because he is perfect and he's worth more than all of us put together. But Lord, as we have need and see our need, the depth of our need and our sinfulness, Lord, remind us of that so that we might then see how we don't live up to that standard, that we might confess our need for you. And then in our confession of inability, that your son Jesus would be magnified in our lives. Lord, help us to love you back because you first loved us in Jesus. We ask that in his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.